I'm happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Sarah Varney. Sarah Varney covers health for KQED's The California Report and Health Dialogues and reports regularly for NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. She has reported on a range of to topics from stem cell research to gay marriage to ballpark food vendors. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Sarah Varney. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Gregory. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. I want to um, tell you who we've got. We've got a real treat this evening, three amazing women. Um, Katie Albright is the executive director of the San Francisco Child Abuse Prevention Center. She served as a San Francisco deputy city attorney as well as acting general counsel and deputy general counsel for the San Francisco Unified School District. And she co-founded and taught at a nursery school in a community center in Nairobi, Kenya as well. Um, and Dr. Nadine uh, Burke-Harris is the founding physician and former medical director of San Francisco's CPMC Bayview Child Health Center. She recently embarked on a new project to create the Center for Youth Wellness. It's a comprehensive health and wellness center that integrates medical, mental health, holistic, and social services. And then Robin Carmorse, um, as Gregory mentioned, is a family therapist in private practice in Portland, Oregon. She is the former director of parents training for the Oregon Child Welfare System and served as the first executive director of the Oregon's Chil uh, Oregon Children's State Fund. Um, she co-authored, uh, she's co-authored two books actually, which maybe we'll, we'll talk about both of them tonight, but the most recent one is Scared Sick, The Role of Childhood Trauma in Adult Disease. So, and that's kind of where I, I want to start actually with you, Robin, tonight. I think the first question that many of us have on our minds is what kind of childhood trauma are we talking about here? And what's, what is, uh, when is the childhood trauma strong enough to have deleterious effects later on in a person's life? Well, in Scared Sick, we're certainly talking primarily about childhood emotional trauma. But to separate them is a little bit ridiculous because what happens to us emotionally happens to us physically as well. So we're talking about emotional trauma that has very strong biological, physiological consequences, particularly by... I mean, one of the things that people need to understand is that what happens when fear comes into the brain... It upsets the entire system. It upsets the endocrine and the immune system. There's a direct connection called the HPA axis, the fight-flight system that we all know about, right? Fight-flight means that fear comes into the brain. A message is sent from the hypothalamus in the brain to the pituitary, to the adrenal system, and the whole system is now engaged. So what happens to us emotionally happens to us physically. Dr. Burke, can you talk a little bit, though, more specifically about what, what kind of a home would lead to that kind of chronic stress? Uh, sure. the, 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 a, a, describe for us a couple of the homes that perhaps you've seen in your practice in San Francisco. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, definitely a home where there is um, any type of uh, domestic violence. If there's a threat to the integrity, the fear is around... Um, uh, the fear response is triggered when there's a threat to the integrity. So um, domestic violence, physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, sexual abuse, uh, certainly. But then also for kids, uh, something else that's a threat to the childhood integrity is separation from their parents. And so um, with a parent, a child's livelihood and survival being dependent on their parent if, uh, if the child is separated from the parent, such as being placed in foster care, or um, even honestly, um, it, like an acrimonious divorce or something like that where um, the, the child is separated from the parent, or the parent un, uh, disappearing without an, uh, the child understanding why that happens. So parental incarceration is certainly um, one of the things that we have seen to uh, be a chronic stressor for kids. And how long does the chronic stress have to be in play before we start to see these effects later on in life? Are we talking about a child who's under severe stress for six months perhaps, or does this have to be something that goes on for several years before the effects really get rooted into the, the child's system? It's different for different kids. It's amazing. Um, you, you know, people talk a lot about resilience, and I'm, uh, I'm very cautious of that word. But it has to do with your own um, DNA and how, how uh, susceptible the child is initially. And then from there, it also has to do with, you know, what the circumstances are. Two, I mean, we've seen this before. Two siblings 
in the same household can have a very different response to what has happened in the household. So there's no formula for it, um, but certainly the interpersonal nature has a strong effect. So the more interpersonal, for example, physical or um, uh, physical abuse or domestic violence, those have a very strong correlation. The other thing is um, neglect, right? Which is also a very interpersonal um, experience of not having your needs met by your parents. So um, uh, those are things that are demonstrated to to uh, make a difference. The longer it goes on, the more intense it is, um, things like that. So these are not necessarily households. I, mean, I have a four and a half year old, it's stressful. I got in a major battle with him last night about not finishing his dinner before he could have a popsicle. And there was se- severe stress in the home for 20 minutes. <laughs> We're not talking about that. No, in fact. I that, don't need to be worried that yes. I'm going to impair and, my child from. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that is that although that feels quite stressful, you as a parent are actually uh, meeting your child's needs. And um, they, you may not agree with it. <laughs> he, he may, may not, not agree, agree with, with you. <laughs> but they, but um, uh, that type of stress is, um, you know, as long as you don't beat him into eating his dinner, you should be fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, Katie, I want to, you obviously work on, on child abuse prevention. And I, I'm curious if you have a sense of whether or not children feel that they can hide them, can, can children hide themselves from some of these stressors? I mean, clearly if they're being abused physically in the home, it's difficult to necessarily get away from that. But is, is there a way that, child, that you've seen children react in these homes as sort of a defense mechanism? Oh, completely. And I think when you look at the different types of stressors in the home, as, as Dr. Burke was mentioning, um, it's going to impact and it's very variable depending on what's going on. So you look at risk factors relating to the child, risk factors relating to the parent and the family situation, and risk factors relating to the sort of entire community setting. And so for the child, um, you know, there's, there's a high correlation between increased abuse or neglect with little kids. Um, boys are more, older boys are more susceptible to physical abuse. Hmm. Older girls, teenage girls are more susceptible to sexual abuse. Um, And children could look very much like a parent or look very much like a partner, um, different from another sibling in the home, and therefore be treated very differently. Um, And as Dr. Burke was mentioning, children develop a level of resiliency. And each child, depending on their DNA or, or their environmental makeup, may develop resiliencies in different, different ways. And there is a natural way to protect yourself. Um, and so what we often do when working with children, and we work both with children and with caregivers, is to provide those mechanisms um, so when bad things happen, they have a way to be able to react in a safe way, both for parents and for the child. And what are some of those things that you tell them to do? Well, from a, from a children's perspective, um, to be able to identify, they're not um, required to be the, their own protector, but who are the safe adults in their lives that they can go and find um, to help themselves? So using their voice. And, and, and for the adults to find a parent who or a caregiver or an adult in their life who, they w- who would listen to them. One of the things I think we learned when we were reading in, over the last couple months about the Sandusky case is that oftentimes adults don't believe children. And so what we try very hard um, is to teach children to use their voice and for parents to listen to them. Hmm. So Robin, we're talking about children who are growing up in these households, and you, you were describing how you know, their little bodies are essentially flooded with cortisol and adrenaline, and that this sort of constant stress is having an effect on the architecture of their brain and their nervous systems. Um, um, and I, I wonder if you can talk more specifically about 20, 30, 40 years down the road, what actually is showing up? What, what, what do we see in a person in, in terms of their rates of chronic disease or other things uh, that we could tr- perhaps trace back? I'd like to back up. I want to answer that question, yeah. but I'd like to back up just a little bit. You were talking about the kinds of things that are in the home. And, and we got some, a wonderful series of understandings about things that affect this in the home with older children. But if we're talking about a baby... It's a little different scenario. Toxic stress or trauma for a baby is very different than toxic stress or trauma for an older child or an adult. You know, we think of trauma as a a big deal. It's a car accident or it's a Katrina or a natural disaster. But trauma for a baby 
is much subtler and it's much more invasive because that little nervous system is just beginning chemically and structurally and so is the endocrine system and so is the immune system so when things happen when bad things happen chronically not just one thing but chronically particularly during gestation when mom is pregnant with that little fetus or in the first two years of life it takes a much stronger hold on the body of the individual things like gestating inside of a mom who is stressed herself who's experiencing distress when mom is distressed the fetus is distressed the same chemicals cortisol and adrenaline bathe that little brain and body same chemicals that she is experiencing in response to her own difficulties being born via certain kinds of invasive procedures uh the chronic use or the too, too often use of uh cesarean sections and inductions is a trauma to a, a tiny baby being born prematurely you know preemies we can keep preemies alive now at younger and younger ages but they go to the nicu the neonatal intensive care unit their nervous system is not ready for touch let alone for light or sound or any of the other realities in this world and so in the nicu the average preemie experiences 10 to 15 painful events every day uh then going into a home where there's domestic violence or addiction or mental illness probably the most surprising thing that i found in the research the thing that surprised me the most about what causes trauma very early in life is maternal depression you know we think of it as a fairly benign situation and have great empathy clearly and rightfully for the mom but what maternal depression means to an infant is that mom is not available to connect with eye contact to connect with reciprocal cooing and joyfulness and immediacy of response so the attachment relationship is very much interfered with by her illness and um you know i was amazed to find that in many studies uh maternal depression is has as great an impact as child abuse and neglect mm. just a surprising reality and then you have the whole host of things that you spoke about that can go on in the home but of all the things that probably is the most critical early it's the attachment relationship when it's broken profoundly whether it's by hospitalization or whatever events take place that that disable that envelope of love and connection between a baby and a parent that's trauma to that little brain and body and if there's any one health insurance policy that we have it's that relationship it's that loving relationship with one person and there's some pretty <clears throat> incontrovertible research that we've seen over the years we were talking about a study um in the green room the a study called the ace study that essentially linked this that said if you have these risk factors early in your life and essentially the higher the number of risk factors you have the more likely you are to have heart disease That's right. Stroke. That's talk right. talk if you can about about It's interesting that because I mentioned the HPA axis in fight flight HPA axis is triggered. The two main hormones involved in in fight flight are as Sarah mentioned adrenaline and cortisol which affect the entire system. So that when you look down the line at what the diseases are that appear later when there's been chronic trauma early they're the exact they are diseases of the exact parts of the body that fight flight was meant to prevent but are meant to care for but actually instead undermines functions of both the immune and the endocrine system so when you have excessive adrenaline and again i want to repeat this is when we have chronic chronic events early in the life of a child it's never just one but when you have chronic stimulation of adrenaline and cortisol the diseases that appear later are diseases that are born of the dysregulation of those two hormones and their impact on the immune and endocrine system so too much adrenaline you see high rates of heart disease hypertension uh uh stroke uh hardening of the arteries uh col- high cholesterol anxiety panic too much cortisol cortisol is these two hormones are meant to act uh in counterpart with each other so adrenaline is the mobilizing hormone and cortisol is the demobilizing hormone so the diseases that are born of excessive cortisol are thing which which uh 
mutes the immune system is, um, are, are like the autoimmune diseases, diseases of inflammation. Um, and then if things continue and the child goes from fight flight into full-blown trauma, you see both cortisol and adrenaline circulating at the same time, frozen in place, and you see diseases like fibromyalgia and GERD and IBS, diseases that have this cyclical quality to them. So clearly, if we know that this to be the case, you'd think we'd want to prevent it in the first place, which, Dr. Burke, is some of the work that you're doing in San Francisco. I wonder if you can describe for the audience um, how, when a patient presents at the clinic, at the, at the baby clinic where, where you have been working, and how you have this multidisciplinary team that essentially sits down and, and talks about what's going on in the home. Can you kind of walk us through a, a patient case? What we do at uh, the Baby Trial Health Center is, you know, uh, we were working with a um, very high-risk um, population, uh, one of the highest rate in, in the neighborhood that we serve, violence is the number one cause of premature death. And that's kind of the neighborhood that we're working in in San Francisco. And uh, so I was seeing a lot of kids in clinic who were having lots of problems with, you know, uh, behavior and learning. Um, a lot of kids sent to me for ADHD. And then when I looked at, when I did my job as a pediatrician and did an actual thorough history and physical exam, what I found was a lot of them were really in the spectrum of trauma and not necessarily PTSD because there's no post. Like when you go home to it every day, there's no uh, PTSD. But really um, what we're now calling more trauma spectrum disorder or developmental trauma disorder because it it goes on and it affects kids' development. And and, uh, when I read about the ACEs study and saw that... um, you know, for, for these adults, those who are exposed to, you know, four or more of these categories of adverse childhood experiences, they're, um, compared to someone who had none of these, their risk of um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease was, two and a, was 260%. For hepatitis, it was two and a half times. For uh, depression, it was four and a half times. For suicidality, it was 12 times. For IV drug use, it was 46 times. For autoimmune disease, if you had two of these adverse childhood experiences, your, your risk was double as compared to someone who had none. And so as a pediatrician, I was like, wow. You know, I give the tetanus shot all day long, <laughs> but I haven't treated a case of tetanus in a while. And so really prevention is the key. And what we started doing was universal screening. So we have... For every child, when they come in, they, you have their, your annual physical. And, you know, I ask about how many ounces of milk you're drinking a, a day. And are you potty trained or not? Or are you meeting your developmental milestones? And the other thing I ask about is, has your child ever been exposed to anything um, scary or traumatic? Have they ever witnessed any violence in the home or in the community? Has, um, have they ever been harmed by anyone? And I kind of go through and, you know, not like on a checklist, but um, I, I go through with my mental checklist and um, do an ACEs screening on every single one of our kids. And then we do, um, uh, and then we score it, right? And then I can also, so when we did this, it turned out that 12% of our kids had a score of four or more. Now, as a pediatrician, and that is, by the way, when the parent is telling me, mm. and I'm a mandated reporter, right? So the parent at home is telling a person who is legally required to act on this, and of those families, 67% had at least one adverse childhood experience, um, 12% had four or more, and I can already say, just by looking at their uh, chart, that that child is twice as likely to have heart, uh, heart disease, two and a half times as likely to have hepatitis, 12 times as likely to attempt suicide, 46 times as likely to be an IV drug but user. I, and I think that the big question has always been with this work, what do you do about it then? Because yeah. you are just one physician, you're a pediatrician in a very busy practice. Um, 
So what do you do? What was, the, what was the solution that you came up with at your clinic to make sure that these families were then getting some follow-up? Well, if I had to deal with that on the daily and I didn't have a way to manage it, I would have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but um, fortunately, what we did, because this clinic was designed to reduce health disparities and inc- improve outcomes for, f- for families in this community, we had a, um, a case manager, it's like a social worker, we had a psychologist on staff, and this was all provided through grant funding. We had um, an insurance counselor, because a lot of our families are so disorganized that they you know, they lapse out of their insurance and don't renew, and then they, they don't want to come back to the clinic because they don't have insurance. So just keep making sure that folks have access, and then I could literally say, wow, that sounds like a lot. You know what? I have a, a colleague right down the hall who really might be able to help you with some of the behavior your child has been having ever since they witnessed X, Y, and Z happening at home. And I can also say... What's very interesting, because many of our families recognize that this is the truth, right? Like, if I say, you know what, we understand now that this actually um, is harmful to your child's health and increases their risk of having um, harmful outcomes in adulthood, and we have resources to help you manage that, Mm -hmm. and I can just walk them down the hall. So we have a multidisciplinary team. Um, and that's how we manage it in our clinic. And we meet once, once a week, and we have rounds, and we just talk about all the cases and make sure families are plugged into the right resources. Mm. And Katie, in the work that you've been doing with, um, um, with child abuse prevention, this seems like an unusual foray into sort of bringing together child abuse prevention, a medical team, psychiatrists, social workers. Is this something that you've seen before in, in the kind of work that you've been doing? It always seems like child abuse is always about, you know, prosecuting, right? prosecuting the perpetrators. So one of the things we're doing in San Francisco is re- really taking a healthcare lens on a public health problem, in this case, child abuse. And you could do this for any public health care problem, but we've really thought about taking the population of children and providing a titration or a dosage level of services depending on various children's needs. So swine flu is... Um, an example that I understand because it was happening a couple years ago and we were hearing on the news um, so much about swine flu and how to do a public health care and a prevention model on swine flu. And so one of the things we were hearing on the radio quite a lot is um, everyone should make sure you cough into your elbow and wash your hands and that that was going to help decrease a a massive spread of, of swine flu. The analogy in the child abuse prevention world is to um, really talk about parenting and um, appropriate parenting and positive disciplinary parenting and, and, and assume, because we all are, that all children are at risk for abuse and neglect. All children are at risk of adverse childhood experiences. Um, and so having the general awareness is very important. Um, then we look at the level that, that really Dr. Burke is very focused on, is looking at um, secondary prevention. This is looking at the risk factors related to child abuse. In this, took the analogy with the swine flu. You wanted to make sure that, that young children and pregnant moms were really be getting much more intensive work and maybe that they were actually going in and getting a swine flu shot because that's how the community wanted to think about um, titrating its resources. Um, in this, in this realm, with child abuse prevention, we're really looking at who, what are the risk factors and making sure that we can identify those kids that ha- and those families that have some higher level of risk factor and being able to provide those scarce resources to them. And then you think about the, the tertiary prevention, and the tertiary prevention is the, the area we know in the community those, those families, those children actually are at risk. They actually have swine flu in this example. And you want to make sure that you get hospitalization, you get immediate intervention and immediate treatment for that. In the child abuse prevention analogy in, in our world, it's, um, it's actually kids who have a substantiated case of abuse or neglect. Um, and you want to make sure you provide intervention services um, and do it in a multidisciplinary way so all the people who need to be all around the room are able to provide the, the Uh, appropriate care and treatment for the child. Um, What's interesting about the model that that Dr. Burke and I are working on together is to put the pediatric hub right in the same place where the acute care, the tertiary prevention work is going on um, so that we're able to 
do the entire spectrum of the prevention work. And it is an innovative model. It's a model that um, the child abuse world, um, child abuse prevention world, has not had this lens on it because it really has come up from a prosecutorial standpoint. And having the healthcare lens is so essential, so important, because as we now have heard, it's not just, um, it, is, it is both the marriage of the physical and the social emotional side. Um, and as we also know, it also deeply involves um, and interacts with the education components mm -hmm. um, because it has not only long-term health, um, health implications, but it also has significant education impacts because um, children often um, who are traumatized have um, have different uh, educational needs that they may need in the school. Mm. And it seems like with all with this whole discussion, there's some serious implications for our uh, class-based society. I mean, we know that people who live in South Los Angeles have very different health outcomes than those that live on the west side or those that live in the Oakland Hills versus the flats. And I'm curious, you know, just yesterday we had the leading contender for the Republican presidential candidacy say, you know, um, I think... I'm not getting this exactly right, but he said, I'm not worried about Mitt Romney. I'm not worried about poor people. There's a safety net for those people, which has caused a big discussion about uh, how well he knows how, how well that safety net is functioning right now. But Robin, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what policies you might advocate for, given that, um, that, that we know that poor families are, are particularly stressed. Um, what are some of the policies that either you advocate for in your book or just, or just personally to try and really get at this problem head on? I'd, I'd like to talk about policies, but I want to back up one step and sure. say that childhood trauma is not limited to child abuse and neglect, and it's not limited to the poor. Sure. And the outcomes, the illness outcomes, are not limited to just people who have undergone child abuse and neglect. It's unfortunately across all class and ethnic lines, so that's something to keep in mind. I mean, death of a parent, many things that happen to everyday people also are traumatic and also are correlative to uh, disease outcomes later in life, particularly if they happen chronically. But in terms of, of creating that safety net at the front end, you know, our country operates... Just imagine that we in this room, all of us, were part of a, a big corporation. And every bit of money that we had, all of our resources individually and as families, came from the output of our corporation, our manufacturing company. And suppose what we were manufacturing was, I don't know, widgets. Let's just call them widgets. And, you know, that was what we did. Would we turn our back on the quality of raw materials going into the making of our widgets? Would we absolutely ignore quality control in the assembly process and then be shocked at a high rate of return or failure of those widgets? But that's what's going on with our nation in terms of the absolute lack of a safety net at the front end. We could have a very different situation in our country. We could have every junior and senior in high school getting an opportunity to know something about relationships, what sustains them, the kind of work that goes into them, something about babies. I mean, having those, I ran a program in Oregon in 90 high schools where we put kids into a highly relational mental health-based program three days a week, and two days a week they were in child care centers working with the reality of little kids. No better birth control program that you can <laughs> come up with. Um, I think that uh, prenatal care obviously has to be beefed up so that we are talking about some of the things that you're talking about after the fact, before that baby ever arrives, particularly maternal uh, emotional health and what, she's going, what is going on for her in the home while she's pregnant. Um, and certainly educating young men about the importance of their role in this equation is critical. After, you know, you were talking about going to various countries and seeing in the Scandinavian countries and in France the remarkable program they have for family leave after a baby comes into the world so there's an opportunity for that family to gel, for attachment to take place, for that family to have an opportunity together without having time constantly broken, particularly between a primary caregiver and a baby. Um, so adequate family leave would make a great deal of difference. And I think that, you know, uh, it's certainly true in our country that childcare has lagged way behind the need for 
high quality care. So we have more than 50% of mommies working, of mommies of little kids, and we have very inadequate care all over the country. We have some wonderful centers, but overall those centers don't pay well, and so there's high turnover. And there's a big price in that turnover for very young children. So establishing high-quality child care. And finally, my dream is something that I've referred to as the Parenting Institute, which would be, mean that um, if you have a child, there, you know, imagine that as easily as you could schedule a haircut or a workout, you could stop someplace on your beaten path in the mall or wherever it is and sit down and meet for 45 minutes with someone who really knew something about emotional development, how the brain works, how the body works, something about positive discipline, could sit down with them. And whatever your problem was, maybe it's a screaming, you know, a child who's just come home from school in the sixth grade and all of a sudden is miserable, doesn't want to go to school because she says she's fat. Or maybe it's a two-year-old that's, you know, having temper tantrum. doesn't matter. There's no one-size-fits-all. It's tailored to that individual family. And people of all denominations come to the Parenting Institute because it's a cool thing to do. It doesn't look like a social service agency. It looks more like a Starbucks or a gallery. <laughs> it's fun to come. And everybody goes. I mean, why should we not scaffold and support people for doing the right thing rather than, you know, they could get college credit, high school credit for, for attending a series mm -hmm. of sessions, preventive sessions with a baby, would earn a tax credit. Why should we not? So mm. those are some of the things I would... Yeah, I was saying earlier, last year, um, NPR did a whole series on maternal and child health around the world, and I drew the very lucky card and got to go to France. Others went to Zimbabwe and other places. But uh, So I was there uh, for several weeks looking at their maternal and child health system, which they've had in place since after World War II. And it is very different. They do have these preventive health centers that are mandated by law. They're in every town practically in France. Um, they're not perfect, and they are under um, immense financial pressures right now. Um, but these are places where parents come essentially to learn how to be parents, learn how to breastfeed. Um, and I'm curious, Dr. Burke, when you were, you know, going through medical school as a pedi you know, when you were starting to become a pediatrician, were you taught to help parents how to parent, or, or were you really <laughs> just sort of <laughs> looking at it? <laughs> no, of course not. No, but that of seems like not. a big part yeah. of your job now, given what we've just been talking about. It, um, it is. Uh, it is a very, very big part of my job right now, and um, and we were. Definitely did not uh, learn very much about that in medical school. I mean, as a pediatrician uh, in doing residency, we got a tiny uh, bit more of that. But really, what you get trained on um, is uh, mostly hospital-based. I mean, we spend a lot of time in the intensive care unit and... Um, uh, not, a, I mean, a lot of this stuff is are things that you learn in practice and you learn on your own. I do want to go um, back to one um, uh, thing that you mentioned earlier around um, the 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 issue of um, uh, higher income versus lower income folks. One of the things, you know, we've been talking about this adverse childhood experiences study that was one study. There's been, t you know, tons of, um, lots of other research done since then. But the thing that I love about this study is that it, uh, it was done in a population of about 17,500 people. So it's a, a lot of people in Kaiser San Diego. Their population was 75% um, Caucasian, 75% college educated. Um, n more than, I think, 93% had completed high school. So um, that, was a, that was a population where we're not talking about a very low-income population. We're talking about a fairly middle-class population. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing, and, and that population also reported, of adults, reported 12.6% of this population had four or more of these adverse childhood experiences, and about 60-something percent um, had at least one. Uh, what was interesting about it was when you looked at the relationship between these um, early traumas and heart disease and lung disease, 
uh, what they found was that even if you took out the effect of uh, high-risk behavior, so let's say even if you didn't, um, even if you didn't smoke or um, engage in any high-risk behavior, you still had an increased risk of having uh, in heart disease or lung disease because of the changes that happen in the body, um, the brain in the body that we were hearing about before and the changes to your, um, you know, your epigenetic uh, regulation, how your DNA is transcribed and the changes to your immune system and things like that. So um, I think that in terms of how, um, how we're looking at this challenge, it's really important for us to recognize that it's an issue for everyone it's not just an issue for people who then go on to, you know, drink or have, you know, engage in high-risk behavior, high-risk sexual behavior. It's not just an issue for people who have mental health problems. True. It's an issue for everyone. Mm. But you were talking about the neighborhood that you work in. I mean, yeah. you're talking about the vast majority of children who have been exposed to violence, not necessarily oh. in the home, but outside of the home. So it is true that violence is concentrated uh, in our... Oh, in I, did, I did not mean to... to, to you're not wrong, <laughs> okay? The, the exposure among the families that we see is um, epidemic. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's very, very intense exposure. Very, very high risk of dom uh, domestic and community violence. And also higher risk of, for example, um, mental illness. If you have a heart, if you have mental illness and you're having a hard time keeping down a job, chances are that you're not going to end up in living in a neighborhood where a house costs a million dollars. You're going to live in the neighborhood that I serve because you're living off with disability, sure. you know? And so that's, yeah. Well, and it, it's equally important to realize that you know, if you're going to fix the problem, you were talking about social policy. We've tried all kinds of targeted programs. People don't want to come. They don't want to be identified as being somehow more at risk. They, it, that's very, very tough. Even with a wonderful program like Nurse Family Partnership, which is growing around the country and is really the gold standard in terms of, of preventing many of these problems early in life with high-risk families. Maybe with just high describe what Nurse Family uh, Nurse Family Partnership is a program uh, that was put together by a guy named David Oles out of Colorado. Basically is a, a program in most states now, at least embryonically, and, and, and further it's gone further in some states. But it, um, it does... Have, it does look primarily at um, at-risk families, but it provides a nurse as sort of a mentor that goes into the home, similar to the idea that once took place in Great Britain routinely, where a nurse came to the front door when you had your baby. These people, uh, however, uh, the, nurse, the nurses in Nurse Family Partnership get involved prenatally, and they reduce the number of cigarettes smoked and reduce a lot of a lot of problems that can happen during pregnancy that will affect the fetus and then they're there through the child's second year as needed but even that program which is a fabulous program has had great difficulty with um, being let in and and maintaining a relationship with people because they feel targeted and uh, discriminated in a, in a negative way. So have, that's why the Parenting Institute, or something that is a universally universal. available and very upbeat, positive association kind of opportunity, I think, is, is important to have available. Well, a right. similar program that really is universal is going into the home and nurse practitioners very early on and within the first seven to eight weeks of a child being born will go into everyone's home. I actually um, had a, a nurse come into my home when my son was um, about 11 years ago, 12 years ago now. And it, it is a universal approach. And just very basic things are taught around how to parent, how to feed, and how to cope in the middle of the night when your child won't go mm -hmm. to sleep and you're pulling your hair out. And those kind of universal approaches just in the same way we've seen those kind of approaches with education really have much more of an impact. And so when you're thinking about public policy change, um, 
it is actually across all zip codes. We can, we can document it across all zip codes where this is coming, all socioeconomic, all, all ethnicities, all, all cultures. Um, and so the public policy approach really needs to be that. Um, so it doesn't just fall on a certain group of people because we are all coping with the trauma and the, and the long-term impacts of what that trauma is like. Mm. Well, I think that's a good place to open it up for questions. We want to make sure we get as many questions in as possible. How to deal with this issue of fear in our society. Um, that's my first question, what your thoughts are on that. And the second one is also for we as adults who have probably experienced between one and four of those incidents in our homes as infants or as children, is there some ideas you have about looking at, okay, well, if illness is not just about genetics or say about environment, but there's also this emotional component, like what kind of social programs might show up for us as adults to maybe reverse the effects of, of those uh, challenges we experienced as children. Your first question had to do with trying to deal with fear in our culture. And it's a, it, that's a very big question and a really good question. But we all know that fear is sort of a double-edged sword among adults. You know, we love it. Every other, every other movie, it seems like, I look at is, is a violent film. Uh, we, we, there are a lot of people who have uh, burned out their adrenals and really like a real high thrill. And so we, we perpetuate this in our culture. Uh, tabloid sells newspapers and magazines. Um, these are all... Um, purposely inciting some degree of thrill. But fear inside of families, I think, is something that we really need to be talking about. And I do think that preparation of children uh, in, at, at the high school level to understand how much work it is to have a family, to be, a part, be in a partnership, how to handle anger in positive ways needs to be taught across the board in our, within our culture, within our school systems. A ba very basic set of mental health skills could make a lot of difference. There was a time in the 70s when they did this, we did this at least in some schools across the nation. That's all been cut out now. But we need to, I think that's a piece of the answer. I also think that people like you, Sarah, are a big piece of the answer. I think the media can do a great deal by educating the public about the crucial time, this critical period in life, and how much difference we can make if we get it right, and the kinds of things we can do. And I think that NPR and, and your work is, very, is a, a piece of the action, a piece of the, of the answer. <clears throat> and I think that infiltrating movies and television and so on with positive messages about this or educational messages or even ironic comedic messages <laughs> but that get to the to the reality of positive parenting skills is part of it. And then Not the second question I think we'll have Nadine maybe tackle which was this idea of as adults who perhaps have experienced these things as children what can they be thinking about now to mitigate those changes or? Sure. And I will say that my um, standpoint on it is very much as a scientist and as a physician. Uh, so, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a mental health uh, specialist or practitioner. Um, but in terms of the physical things that happen in the body, and um, uh, there are a couple things that there's great data that really help to improve. So um, one of them is certainly is... Um, is mental health care, like, like seeing a therapist, or, or because even the process of creating that bond and um, uh, talking through what the issues are or what the past issues are and um, developing some resolution about that, the process of the brain doing that is actually really healthy. Uh, another thing that we find to be very important, there's great data on, is around regular exercise, so physically, Regular exercise increases things like endorphins. It increases um, your metabolism, so you clear out um, uh, stressors. Uh, you clear out the um, 
the proteins that are associated with stress on a more um, regular basis. And then um, you have more positive hormones. It can decrease your cortisol level and kind of you know, even out some of your hormone levels. So that deals with the endocrine piece. Um, another uh, another uh, thing that has been found to be very helpful is, um, is meditation and biofeedback, actually. There's great um, research on how that affects the um, parts of your brain that are uh, responsible for having this kind of long-term response. The way that I um, uh, talk about it sometimes is that um, a lot of the times for uh, if we've experienced a stressor um, or a traumatic experience, when it's been chronic and repeated, it's like... Um, it's like walking, you know, if you're walking through the forest and you come across the clearing and there is a path that's worn through the grass, right? Like you walk on that path because that path is clear. And so you see a lot of folks who have experienced traumatic, uh, 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 traumatic experiences, especially chronically, they're, <laughs> it's this, they have the same drama going on in their lives and they have... And so one of the things that's found to happen both through therapy and through mindfulness um, work is um, being intentional about cutting another path. So that means that you may have to do some bushwhacking to get, <laughs> to get through, but once you choose that healthy path and you train your brain to go down the non-reactive uh, path over and over and over again, then you wear your own path and this other previous path has a chance to grow over and heal a little better. And then, you know, you get years into it and you don't even realize that that, that had been what you were doing before. So I think if there were three big things, I would say uh, those would be, um, you know, uh, therapy, regular exercise, and um, it, supplemental. It doesn't specific has to be, you know, meditation or whatever, but um, mindfulness-based awareness type work. Have any of you come across the work of a Dr. Lloyd DeMaus of the Institute of Psychohistory, where he's taken the, uh, the historical record and he's gone into societies in, in the past uh, all over the world and he's made uh, well-documented connections between the, the sy systematic abuse of children and the warlike and violentness of that particular culture? From a historical perspective that we do know is how we how families interact and how the community interacts with children is very different. And a lot of it is based on the economic situations in the time. So during the 19, early 1960s, the whole consciousness in America was actually being raised about the fact that children are a being and children have certain rights within their family and there is something called child abuse um, and that children need protection. Um, interestingly, it actually started with a movement to protect animals. And it was in New York, and there was the uh, SPCA in New York, and a child um, very much needed attention, and there was no child abuse prevention location to go to. So this child was actually brought to the SPCA. Hmm. Um, and in San Francisco, we think it's actually quite ironic because there are actually more dogs in San Francisco and cats than there are children. And I think that is sort of... Um, I think um, San Francisco's policy is changing a little bit on its impact with children, but um, there is a, a, a real historical change, and I thank the audience member for bringing it up, about how we really are um, treating children within the family and with the role of our society. And certainly then laws have come from that point of view. And so during the, the 60s and 70s, that's when we first started getting mandated reporter laws, um, and then really looked at the attachment theory that we talked about earlier, and thinking about how the uh, family unit can really um, be a healthy unit going forward. Now what we're seeing, and, and, and I appreciate um, the comment that you made earlier about the presidential race, because th it's actually amazing that our potential presidents are actually talking about family issues um, in this way and being holistic about having that conversation. So while I may not um, agree with um, the policies that were mentioned, I think that it's a great step forward for children in America that we're actually beginning to talk about these kind of issues at the presidential level. Mm.
yesterday we had a teacher who was arrested mm. that was doing bondage type of things with children and all sorts of things that I don't want to even repeat. Um, so it really got me to thinking, even though I have no children in that school, and I don't even have children, um, where did I fail at? I mean, how was this teacher able to teach for 30 years and do these abusive things to these children? And no, I can't say nobody listened. So I'm wanting to know what kind of model will we have to have so that children are protected outside the home as well as they are in the home? Because everyone is a potential uh, attachment figure. Mm. It was very compelling that you mentioned that because um, I think that children are victims any place. That's why we really are beginning to talk about that every child is at risk. So even if your own home is um, uh, whatever perfect family means, but even if your own home is a safe environment, certainly there are other factors in the community that aren't. And um, there's actually quite a significant, I don't know about Los Angeles, um, what's happening in our um, school system in Los Angeles, but there's quite a connection in San Francisco at least around, uh, particularly with Dr. Burke's project around the Center for Youth Wellness, is thinking about how the school system can be an extension because frankly kids are in the school system in the school day more than they're actually at home. And so how can the school be those other models? And um, every Every educator, every teacher, every cafeteria worker, every principal is a mandated reporter. And one of the things that that means is that they need to be trained on how to um, identify and report abuse. And um, we need to do a better job to make sure that educators are getting that message and that they have a place to go so that these kind of um, stories um, sadly don't happen more and more in L.A. or any, frankly any other uh, school setting. Touch is so extremely important from birth to, to death, essentially. And with it being such a problem in preschools and day schools, and um, the teachers are not allowed to touch the children, they're not allowed to hold them or comf com comfort them, what has happened to children because of this? Uh, certainly with older children, touch becomes questionable in after-school care, but I'm not aware of that. I mean, I, I've been in infant child care many times visiting, and, and uh, you know, they're picking babies up and comforting them and doing all the things that you would hope. That the problem is that um, if that person really doesn't have high regard for that baby and sort of see that baby as having hung the moon, uh, that's all... That's all uh, communicate it through touch. So the quality of touch, uh, which actually communicates high regard and affection and sensitivity, is often missing in child care. But I was not aware that in, in infant care and toddler care that that was prohibited in any way. Dr. Burke, do you see this at all in your practice, just in terms of having to teach parents how to be physical with their children? Um, it, well, uh, Certainly in terms of, um, uh, we do have to give a lot of guidance in terms of teaching uh, parents what's an appropriate uh, level of uh, physicality with their children. But um, one thing, um, uh, a program that we did uh, work on getting at the clinic was actually an infant massage um, mm -hmm. program for young moms to work on bonding um, with their baby, specifically um, to uh, harness the healing power of touch in um, uh, for high, you know highly stressed, uh, low-income moms, recognizing that it had the ability to reduce the stress level of both the parent mm -hmm. and the baby. Um, so there is a I think that the context of the touch is is absolutely the important thing, and for folks. Um, who, ha who do have a history of trauma, particularly uh, in adolescents and older kids, recognizing that in different contexts, touch can be very different. And so in certain in contexts, it can be quite healing, but in certain contexts, it can be re-traumatizing depending on what the person has experienced. And so understanding how to navigate that, I think, is really important. Great. It's a language, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all so much for coming, and thanks again to, to our guests, and uh, we'll look forward to some wine and some cheese outside. <laughs>